wait, 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 wait. Bobby Guerra is going to read the scripture for us this morning. I'm going to read from Philippians 3, 1 through 11, if I can see it. Hold on. I can't. Okay. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the, sale, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surprising worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's all. Bobby. All right. Give me my Bible back. Bobby, Bobby, give me my Bible. <laughs> so I wanted... Bobby to read because I know that you tend to be an unruly crowd. <laughs> and Bobby's going to be the enforcer for this morning. He'll walk around anybody acting unruly. He takes you out that way. <laughs> so um, have you ever fallen into the trap of comparing yourself to other people? Am I the only person who's done that? So let me, they tell you never tell an embarrassing story about yourself. So I'm going to violate that rule and I'm going to tell you a very embarrassing story because the whole theme that we've been on so far in Philippians is invincible joy. And the talk for today is some of the things that sap our joy. Like when they show pictures of the mosquito with a proboscis. These are things that just suck the joy right out of our life. So about 25 years ago, I was invited 
to um, a big fellowship in Colorado Springs to share my testimony. So I flew out there. They treated me very well. I shared my testimony. And at, at the end, they asked the men, if you would like to make a decision for Jesus Christ, fill out this card, go to the side. We have men who are ready to talk to you. So, uh, and I was to spend the night there and have dinner with the men who had organized this luncheon. And they said to me, Bill, we had 25 men make first-time decisions for Jesus Christ. We have never had a response that great. Man, I'm feeling pretty good. So three months later, I'm talking to Skip Shantz on the phone, and it turned out that, no, six months later, I'd had a conversation with Skip Shantz on the phone, and three months after I had spoken in Colorado Springs, Skip spoke in Colorado Springs, and very humbly, I said, yeah, when I was out there, they told me that 25 men came to Christ. That's the most they've ever had. Oh, I was so humble. And he said, yeah, that's great. I had a response, too. I had 32. <laughs> and I'm embarrassed to tell you, I got upset. And I'm thinking, he's outperformed me. I had 25. He had 32. So the experience that had been great now became a downer. Let me read something to you from psychology today. And I think it's up on the slide. Um, it's three reasons to stop comparing yourself to others. This is by a secular PhD psychologist, Deborah Carr. Said, I was recently reminded of this conversation after reading about the tragic increase in suicide rates at highly competitive colleges. Smart, popular, accomplished young people from loving families are taking their lives in unprecedented numbers a pattern that some experts attribute to the drive to be the best. A tall, if not impossible, order when surrounded by other ambitious high achievers. Suicide is highly complex and can never be attributed to a single case, uh, cause, although depression is almost always an underlying factor. College mental health experts direct, directly attribute much of modern young adults' malaise to consequences of social comparison. Comparing one's own accomplishments, looks, athletic prowess, school, grades, or popularity to their classmates and feeling that they're coming up short, often with devastating consequences. So with the next slide, I'm going to tell you that comparing yourself with others is a sure way to suck the joy out of your life in at least five ways. First, comparing yourself to others leads to pride and a false sense of self-worth. We begin to think that we are better than others or that we're not as good as others. Second. Comparing yourself to others leads to depression, resentment, and covetousness. Why don't I have what they have? I deserve what they have. They don't deserve that good thing, but I do. Three, 
it escalates the treadmill of performance. If we're on top, we have to work even harder to stay on top. In the Olympic races, if you notice, the runners out front are always looking over their shoulder to find out who's gaining on them. Fourth, comparing ourselves to others leaves us exhausted. We stop trying to do well. I mean, what's the use? Here's a saying. I, I consider it a hateful saying. Unless you're the lead dog, what? The view is always the same. What a dumb idea. Fifth, comparing ourselves to others leads us to despise grace. Inwardly, we attribute our success to our own efforts or to God's, not to God's grace. And if we talk about God's grace, we really talk about it in terms of God rewarding us for our faithfulness, and that's not grace. Inwardly, we attribute the success of others to grace, and they don't deserve it, but we do. So Paul identifies four ways, and this is the next slide, to combat this insidious tendency of comparing ourselves to others. Now, Paul, in writing to the Philippians, is writing because of specific problems they're experiencing. And what would you think of a doctor who, having diagnosed you, announces you have a terrible virus and it has the potential of killing you? Thank you very much. Next. And Paul doesn't do that. He sees the problem, he diagnoses the problem, and he gives a spiritual prescription. So I'm going to give you two do's, or two don'ts, and two do's that out of Paul's letter to the Philippians to help them avoid this problem of comparing themselves to others instead of rejoicing in the grace of God. So the first don't, don't exalt the flesh and be wary of people who do. So in Paul's usage of the phrase, the flesh, there are two aspects. Now, let me explain that there are four or five different ways that the Bible uses the phrase, the flesh. I'm not going to talk about those. I'm talking about this particular method, which is very common, especially in uh, the New Testament and especially in Paul's letters. So in this letter, flesh has two aspects. The one aspect is that it represents those human markers by which we identify ourselves. Um, race, nationality, gender, the region we're born in, looks like Kyle. See, I really don't like Kyle because he's so much better looking than I am. But that's another message. Education, I mean, whatever these markers are, they're not good or bad, they're just markers. But the second aspect of the flesh is the part that takes these markers and corrupts them 
and lead us away from Christ. It is the markers that tend to be corrupted by our own self-will, by that part of us that says, I can do this without God. I don't need God. I have my own system. It's not necessarily conscious at all but it just infects the way infects the way we think apart from submission to Christ our self-will is always opposed to God and his grace as a result we think that we are either better than others or worse than others because of these markers and the worst extreme we see Hitler's Germany Germany and if you weren't pure Aryan, you were to be destroyed. That, but there are many examples of this throughout human history. Whenever these markers are not subject to our identity in Christ, they spell problems. That is the flesh. Our human markers separated from whom Christ, who Christ has called us to be. The flesh, defined this way, is always opposed to God and his grace, it pushes works. So in this instance, there were people who mutilated their flesh as a sign of their religious fervor. Such acts, in fact, have no spiritual power or validity in Christianity. Well, we have our own Christian version of it. We don't necessarily mutilate the flesh, but we let people know we fast one day a week. And somebody else will say, well, yeah, that's really good. I fast two days a week. Somebody says, my quiet time is I spend 10 minutes with God every morning, the first thing I do. And the other person says, well, that's great. I spend an hour with God the first thing I do. Mike Forrest taught us two weeks ago that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Um, and that doesn't mean earn your salvation. The best way to look at it is put your salvation to work. Put your salvation to work. The Bible does not promote asceticism or going to extreme physical lengths in order to be righteous. In Paul's context, mutilating the flesh means going to this terrible self-denial and sacrifice in order to distinguish ourselves, to prove that we are worthy, that we are good Christians. Not only is this contrary to the gospel, but it leads to the thought that people who do not do such things are not real Christians. Paul is telling the Philippians not to fall into the trap of thinking that they must earn God's love or do what they can not to earn it, but to deserve it. We will never earn or deserve God's love. His love is given freely, and therefore we are supposed to exercise our salvation, put our salvation to work by rejoicing in Christ. Now the second don't is don't put confidence in the flesh. And confidence is to believe in something or someone to the extent of placing reliance or trust in or on it. Paul did not say this lightly. This truth was pulled through him, breaking down everything he had previously valued in himself. The, the markers that he had used to distinguish himself from other people. 
So he says, put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has confident reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Say, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had counted, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. So when Jesus encountered Paul on the road to Damascus, Jesus took, took him by the ankles, held him upside down, and just shook him. And everything that he believed in, everything that he had trusted in, his Jewishness, his Phariseeism, the fact that he was the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that never violated, never turned against God of the 10 tribes, 12 tribes, only two didn't, Judah and Benjamin. So he was, he was proud to be a Hebrew. And then he finds himself in opposition to Christ and everything he thought about himself proved to be those things that had put him actually in opposition to God. So rubbish translated here in the King James, is translated as dung. And the Greek word refers to something that is utterly worthless and discardable, trash. Now, from a societal standpoint, we got this line. There's a, in the middle, there's kind of a zero. On one side, it's good stuff. And on the other side, it's bad stuff. And from a societal standpoint, some of us are on the plus side of zero in our own eyes, or maybe in the eyes of society. And some of us are on the minus side of zero. Again, in our own eyes and maybe in society's line. On the plus side, we expect things to go our way. We are generally pleased with ourselves and successful. We have a generally positive self-image. We may even think that we're a bit special. In terms of the flesh, it is where our identity and life in the world's eyes tells us that we are desirable and successful. And we'll turn to things like our education, our family background, the job we have, our physical or intellectual attributes. On the minus side, we expect things to fail. We're generally not pleased with ourselves and regard our efforts mainly as unsuccessful. We have a generally negative self-image. We have little self-confidence. We want to hide from people. We don't want to be the center of attention. And the more successful the people appear to be, the more we want to stay away from them because it's just painful to look at their success compared to our 
lack of success as we see it in our eyes. We have no pedigree. We see ourselves as a loser. More likely we're going to fail if we start out on something, so why try? But in Christ, like Paul, all of us come to ground zero. When Paul said, I counted all his loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. So all those things that were on the negative side that held me down, I bring to the foot of the cross. My identity has to be rebuilt in Christ, through Christ, and by Christ. On the plus side where, as we used to say about certain guys on campus in college, he thinks he's God's gift to the world. You ever heard that phrase? Is that, is that a real generational thing? Um, and that person who has to bring everything to, to ground zero, and that person has to be torn down and built up in Christ, so we all suffer loss. Sometimes it's loss that we want to get rid of, and sometimes it's loss we don't want to get rid of. But the loss is nothing compared to what we gain in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That when God builds us up, it ceases to be about us and more about Christ. Our worth is in Christ. There is no worth outside of Christ. Um, so, now those are two don'ts. Now I want to turn to two do's. First do. Glory in Christ Jesus, Paul says in verse 3. So how does this fit in with the injunction that we've been hearing about over the last couple of Sundays to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? We've already established that verse means put your salvation to work or exercise your salvation. That means put, it means in part to live under God's grace with gladness and thanksgiving. Uh, whenever I walk our dogs in the morning, and I often pass Chad on the way, um, I start out by fixing on some aspects of God for which I praise him. And so the dogs and I are walking, and I'm just praising God, and then I turn from praise. I just thank God for some things, whatever it may be, that he's doing in my life or in the lives of our children or in the lives of friends. Um, so I have to tell you, I'm part geek. I say part because I'm really unsophisticated in a lot of this tech stuff. But I love to look at YouTube clips. All right, here's one of my favorite ones. The 10 most powerful Marvel characters. Now I find that very interesting. <laughs> Who wouldn't, right? So I'm going through the list and they start from number 10, and they work up. Number 10 is Galacticus. Don't you just love it? Galacticus. And then, number, and then it works up to number two is the Beyonder. But you know who the number one was? I was so intrigued. Who was the number one? I finally get to it, and the, the guy says, or the woman, whoever wrote it, the number one is Stan Lee. Because he created the Marvel Universe. And I went, of course. Who is greater than Jesus? He created the universe. Galacticus. 
and the beyonder are nothing without Stan Lee, who is nothing without Jesus Christ. So using that same thought, Jesus is the only true superhero. He can destroy all the other superheroes with a simple... Everything we have and everything we are is utterly dependent on Christ Jesus. So, um, as to his attributes, he is loving, he's kind, he's omnipotent, he's sweet, he's caring, he's always present, he's interested, he's empathetic, and yet he never leaves us in the same place. He gives us a boost. He says, Bill, you like to swim? Yes. Okay, go to the deep end of the pool. What are we going to do, Jesus? Ah! (laughs) But as, again, uh, Mike taught, he doesn't just push us in the pool. It's not just God with us. It's God for us. He's doing things to help us grow. So let me give you um, an example of when I was on the bench. This phrase of being in Christ in Christ. Glory in Christ. When I was on the bench, uh, defendants would, criminal defendants would come before me and they were not allowed to speak to me without my permission. Their lawyers spoke on their behalf and I typically did not ask the defendants questions unless it's a confession, are you guilty? Instead, I questioned their lawyers, and their lawyers would answer for me. So when Satan or self accuse us of doing wrong things, and generally Satan or self are correct, we have done those things. Jesus tells the Father... Everything that self says and everything that Satan says about Bill McCurry is true. But I don't want you to look at him. I want you to look at me. I have borne his sin and I put my righteousness on him. I have borne his penalty. I want you, Father, to look at Bill with all the love that you have for me. So the criminal defendants are in a sense in their lawyer. They need a representative, someone to speak on their behalf who will stand up for them. We are in Christ in that sense. He is always advocating for us. He is always speaking on our behalf and he's always directing the Father's attention to us through him. Dad, I know what Bill has done, but look at me, look at me. So to glory in Christ means in part, as uh, Kylie Lee likes to say, what Christ has done for us, that's salvation. What Christ is doing in us, which is sanctification. And what Christ seeks to do through us, which is part of this exercise your salvation, do things to help others. Uh, There is obviously more, but we're going to narrow our focus because of time constraints. Now, I've done, I I now am retired from the bench and I do private mediations. When people are in disputes, they, they come before me and they pay me to try to help them resolve their disputes. 
But when I start a new mediation, I value my past experience, but I do not lean on it. I lean on Jesus. I ask him to give me insight, wisdom, discernment, um, to move the people's hearts toward agreement as opposed to opposition. So that first do is the glory in Christ. And when we do that, it's one of the things that stops us from looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves to others. But here's the next do. Paul says, count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now Paul was very proud of his Jewish pedigree. Nothing wrong with that. Um, so it is right and it is good and it is expected to appreciate your background and who you are and your accomplishments. But it is necessary in your mind to be prepared to count them as rubbish compared to the glory of knowing Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, again, as Mike Forrest, I keep saying Mike Forrest because he gives me $20 every time I mention him in a sermon. <laughs> and so I'm up to $60. That's the third mention. Um, he said two Sundays ago, get eternal. That is, have an eternal perspective. Paul said that in today's text. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. So that that do that protects us from comparing ourselves with others, which in turn saps our joy, is to rejoice in the fact that we know Jesus and that he wants us to know him and that he continually makes means available for us to know him in a better and deeper way. Jeremiah 9:24 says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. We also are encouraged to rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Jesus knows each one of us individually. I was at a, a function with a ton of very important people. On the pecking order, I was way down at the bottom. And there was a, a, a the keynote speaker was a very esteemed man. And the guy said something like that. And as my friend Bill McCurran, and you could watch everybody go like this, whoosh. <laughs> and I felt like, oh. Um, that's what we have with Jesus. I mean, it is amazing to me that the God of the universe is absolutely 100% committed to Bernice and to Rob and to Colin, even though Colin is from Birmingham. Even that God is absolutely 
one, it's like he doesn't divide his commitment. I'm going to give Bill 5% today and I'll give Mel 3%. No, he is 100% committed to us every single day. Um, so I'm going to give you, so if you don't know, if you don't know whether your relationship with God is real, if, if you're wondering what does it really mean to have a relationship with Christ, to actually say, okay, I'm, I think I want you to take over my life, but I'm not quite sure what that means. I want to encourage you to go to a life group or are, it, are there any life group leaders here? Would you raise your hand? Okay, stand up for a minute if you're a life group leader. <laughs> See, first I get you to embarrass yourself by raising your hand. Okay, come on, Kyle, all the way up, Kyle. All right, everybody say, boo, Kyle. No, don't, don't. Okay, you can sit. Go to one of these people. Go to one of these people and just meet with them privately and say, I'm very interested in exploring what it means to be a Christian. Can we talk privately? Okay, so with the last slide, number five, I'm going to give you two suggestions for the coming week. And the focus is on... I want to learn to count everything else that I've relied on in my identity as done compared to the richness of knowing Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you two simple things to do. I know it says three suggestions on the slide, but after talking with my wife and Candace, I narrowed it down to two. And actually, can you turn that off? I've changed it, too. So hide that. Otherwise, you'll have five suggestions. I'm just trying to give you two. So number one, in the opening verse of our text today, Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So clearly, this is the very first suggestion for the week. Try this. Every day, now, it may be hard to believe, but I've always, until the last 10 years or so, I basically had a melancholic personality. People who were really close to me knew that, but people who weren't didn't know that. And about 15 years ago, God said to me, I want you to wake up in the morning, and before you get out of bed, I want you to just thank me. And so I would literally lay in bed while I thank you that I had a good night's sleep. I thank you that I'm married to Dana. Uh, I thank you that I have work that is, in, you know. And then he said, at night, do the same thing. Just look back over your day or over your life, and you thank me. That was 15. I've done it every day for the past 15 years. And somehow, my melancholy went from here to non-existent. I, I, was, I wasn't even aware of this until yesterday as I was refining the message. I realized, my goodness. That melancholy, which has been part of my personality as long as I can remember, has gone. Second suggestion. Call someone or write someone and tell them three things you love about them or appreciate about them. Call them and not an email. I'm old school. Either pick up the phone or write a letter um, if a friend just got a promotion, 
congratulate them or maybe take them out to lunch say, I hear you got a new job or got rejoice in the good that they are experiencing. All right, let's pray. God, I thank you for Mike Forrest. I thank you for the fact that we can gather as a family to study your word. I thank you that your word can be translated into a thousand different languages and never lose its meaning. I thank you that you have empowered us to glory in Christ Jesus and find our identity rooted in him. Please protect us from comparing ourselves to others and do cause us to rejoice in the name of Jesus. Amen.